0: Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and was praised by everyone. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been raised. On the Sabbath he went to the synagogues, as he normally did, and stood up to read. The synagogue assistant gave him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. He unscrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim the release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue assistant, and sat down. Every eye in the synagogue was fixed on him. He began to explain to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled, just as you heard it. Everyone was raving about Jesus, so impressed were they by the gracious words flowing from his lips. They said, This is Joseph's son, isn't it? Then Jesus said to them, Undoubtedly you will quote this saying to me Doctor, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. He said, I assure you that no prophet is welcome in the prophet's hometown. And I can assure you that there were many widows in Israel during Elijah's time, when it didn't rain for three and a half years, and there was a great food shortage in the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to a widow in the city of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. There were also many persons with skin diseases in Israel during this time, during the time of the prophet Elisha. But none of them were cleansed. Instead, Naaman the Syrian was cleansed. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was filled with anger. They rose up and ran him out of town. They led him to the crest of the hill on which their town had been built, so they could throw him off the cliff. But he passed through the crowd, and went on his way. Here ends the reading. An interesting side effect of being uh, someone interested in the ministry for a long time, and and someone who has a family and, and children, is that your family and your children end up spending a lot of time in church <laughs> but they get to see a side of church that uh, that most people don't see and this is certainly the case with my daughter the the church we the church my daughter grew up in was first Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin and we joined the church when she was very very young I think I think she was five years old when we joined the church and we joined largely to give her a place um, a, a uh, a community to be a part of, but there was a uh, a bit of drama almost immediately after we joined the church. Not even six months had gone by, and the board uh, put up a, a vote to dismiss the pastor over not living up to his contract, and it was a hugely divisive thing for the congregation. And the congregation, which was about I don't five or six hundred people, um, split. Over that, and uh, you know, half of them left the congregation. Um, The pastor was was uh, was uh, let go, and they went into they went first into interim ministry for two years, and then into search before they found their their current uh, uh, pastor, uh, who has been there ever since. Who is fantastic, and so it was only six months after we joined the congregation that we found. The congregation to be in desperate need of people to help, because when half the congregation leaves, a lot of things, uh, a lot of experience goes with it, a lot of a lot of history, a lot of volunteers, and so uh, my wife and I pitched in and we joined the religious education department, which is uh, Sunday school, if you will, and you know with with a congregation of six hundred people. You've got more than a hundred kids in Sunday school every every Sunday, and so it was a big it was a big deal. And I, I like to work with the older kids, so I helped out with the middle school and high school kids, and my wife helped out with the elementary school kids and and younger. And uh, we just kind of evolved from there. It was it was during my time as a youth advisor that that I became interested in ministry. I, t- I eventually took on a job at the at the church. I was hired there to be the the youth um, advisor. Uh, my wife was hired to be a uh, an assistant in the RE department and then when the person in charge of the RE department left she she took over that job eventually and became um, the director of, of religious education at that congregation and uh, I left to join you know to start my ministry um, preparation I switched to the UCC but and I started attending other churches and and serving in other churches but nonetheless my daughter spent a lot of time growing up at that church and other churches and she was very used to, to being asked to do things being asked to stand and read being asked at the last minute to, to take over some part and she felt very comfortable doing so because she had been raised that way and so when i hear this story of of jesus um coming back to his home church and getting up and saying something i think about my daughter my daughter now she grew up in that church uh, you know, all the way until she was in middle school and uh, in high school, actually. And, uh, it was in her first year of, it was in her, the end of her first year of high school that we moved to Japan. And so all, all through then she was, she was, uh, you know, at that church 10, 10, years, I guess. And yet I know that, uh, it was a problematic thing for her that, um, that that she has difficulty with the church because of how people treated her there, because they thought of her as uh, as my daughter or as my wife's daughter more often than as her own person. And I see this in the story of Jesus coming back to his home church and not being welcome in the place he grew up because he didn't say things that people liked. And people asked him, is... Isn't this, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, don't, don't we know this person? This isn't somebody special. This is just Joseph's son. The story about Jesus in the synagogue is placed right at the beginning of, of Luke's gospel. And especially at the, the beginning of Jesus's ministry in Luke's gospel. So first we have a chapter about the birth of Jesus and um, the angels coming and telling Mary, that Jesus was going, to, was going to be born, and then the birth of Jesus, and then we have a chapter about John the Baptist and John preparing the way uh, for Jesus's ministry, and then we have this chapter where we talk about Jesus's uh, early ministry, and Luke puts it right at the beginning, and Luke places all of Jesus's ministry, it should be noted, firmly within um, the, the rituals and practices of, of Judaism. You know, uh, Jesus is a very faithful Jew. He attends services every week, and he takes part in the religious life of the community. And a regular part of the life in the community, it was um, to read and then discuss the meaning of um, the scriptures. The synagogues uh, were came about during the Babylonian exile because the, the temple was only in Jerusalem. And so when the people found themselves in, in places where they couldn't travel to the temple, they had to have some kind of religious community, and so they, they started having these synagogues. And the synagogues uh, didn't have a priest, so they had, uh, they had teachers, rabbi were teachers, but not priests, so to speak. And so uh, you couldn't do your, your offerings and things in the synagogue. But People would come, and they would study the scriptures, and they would learn and, uh, and teach and discuss and so, a, a, a religious community that had been very focused on ritual and sacrifice became one that was focused very heavily on on the scriptures. It became a, a religion of the book. And so, Jesus is in the middle of this tradition when we when we find him. He's grown up in the in the in the uh, in the synagogues. He's used to to discussing the scriptures with the teachers. And. So he comes back home after having traveled around uh, other parts of the area, other parts of Galilee. And Luke doesn't say this specifically. Um, you know, Matthew and Mark place this story much later in their Gospels. But Luke puts it right at the beginning. And I, and, but yet he, he alludes to the fact, because he, he mentions that, that Jesus had been traveling around and that, and that other people had been hearing Jesus speak and had been impressed by him before he came back to Nazareth. And I think the the reason it's at the front is not because Luke had a different understanding of the of the timeline. I think it's at the front because Luke wanted to emphasize the 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 underlying reasons for Jesus's ministry. Uh, he wanted to put that right at the beginning as a, a theological statement about who Jesus was and what he was focused on doing. And so. Um, he gets up, he, he, you know, he reads in, in service. This is, you know, this is a really common thing we do in, in Christian churches. And again, my daughter's been asked to do this before he come to service. And, oh, we need somebody to read the, 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 the Old Testament reading. Can you, can you help with that? And you, you were kind of roped into it, <laughs> right? And so it was the same kind of thing. Like you were expected to read on a regular basis if you were an adult male in the synagogue. And so Jesus is, is uh, reading. And normally what it was done is you read from the law and from the prophets, and the reading from the, from the law rotated, but the reading from the prophets was allowed to be kind of up to the decision of the reader. And so uh, there was a, an assistant, what we might call a sextant in, in our churches, a person who's in charge of maintaining all of the things that belong to the synagogue, the, including the scrolls and, and where they're kept, the chest where they're kept and everything. And so Jesus would have asked the assistant to prepare the scroll for Isaiah. And then when it's his turn to read, the assistant hands Jesus the scroll and Jesus opens to Isaiah sixty one and he reads this quote from Isaiah. And just to be to remind you that the quote is The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that quote in Isaiah has a line immediately after that. Uh, and the line after that is, And the day of vindication for our God. And yet, Jesus leaves this out. Uh, and that might have really upset some of the people who were, who were listening to him, because the, the two went hand in hand to proclaim the day of the Lord and a day of vindication for our God. The the Jewish people wanted the Messiah to come and punish the people who had been against them, punish their enemies to have God punish their enemies. But Jesus leaves us out very purposely leaves us out. And the reason for this is that Jesus's ministry is one of universal reconciliation. Jesus is going not just to the people of Israel, not just the people who have been worshiping God all this time, but also to their enemies. Jesus is going also to the Gentiles, also to the Romans, going to all people, to bring all people to God, not just the Jewish people, not just the Israelites. And Luke's description of Jesus's ministry follows this same kind of pattern. First, Jesus preaches locally preaches to the the jewish people the people the religious um, leaders the religious leaders of of his day reject his teaching and so then he turns out and teaches uh, to people outside of israel and we see this theme repeated over and, and over in in the gospel in luke's gospel and so it makes sense for luke to begin with this same idea at a very at a very local source so here at a, at a very micro level, we're seeing that Jesus goes to his hometown, the people who know him the best, and preaches to them about about reconciliation, and they are offended by his teaching, and they run him out of town. And he says, you know, a prophet will never be popular in his own hometown. And yet other places in Galilee were very excited to see him and were saying good things about him. So it's not like all of the Jewish people were against him or anything. It It, it was... The religious leaders of the day who, were, who had a problem with with what he was saying. We see this also, this um, universal reconciliation idea, in what Jesus says. He says that the, the the quote that he reads from it says, "He's come to bring good news to the poor, release of prisoners, liberation of the oppressed, and the day of the Lord." And the day of the Lord reminds us of the jubilee of the day that. That all debts will be forgiven. That um, you know that everything kind of resets. So we saw this also in our reading much earlier in the lectionary from Jonah, where Jonah was angry that God sent him to Nineveh, because Jonah knew that God was forgiving, and Jonah felt that God was too forgiving. That God should not be forgiving of these people who were not part of the part of his own community, and yet. God sent him specifically to people outside of Israel to warn them and, to, and to, to preach and to save them. And Jonah was angry about this because he thought it was not fair. So here we see this kind of played out again in the people um, around Jesus. So what happens next after he gets up and says this? Well, he says, I bet you're going to tell me that I should do something to prove who I am. I bet you're going to say, I need to show you signs like I've shown in other places i'm not going to do that because you'll never believe me anyway it's the gist of what he says Um, and they get angry and they and and he he points to these two readings uh one from elijah and rom and um and the other um from uh a lot from elijah and elisha who i get confused sometimes he shows these two examples of, of prophets in the past who were sent out to people outside of Israel. Elijah was not sent someone in Israel but was sent to Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And and Elisha was not sent to Israel but was sent to Syria. Um so he's he's pointing out that God often sends prophets outside of Israel to bring in people, um and to help people who are outside of of the Jewish community. And so the people get really angry at this. Most of his his you know his uh leaving out of the of the day of vengeance of god's vengeance his his um, unwillingness to perform any signs the fact that he grew up around among them and, the, and he came from a poor family and he had kind of a sketchy past and they're not really sure what they think of him um, And now he's quoting these these scriptures to them as if to to prove his point and they just get angry and they decide to 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 kill him to, to throw him off the cliff and so they chase him out of town and up the cliff but He's able to escape through the, clou- through the crowd and kind of disappear and, and uh, get out of the situation. So what does the scripture have to do with our lives as Christians today? And why is it important? And why is it important in Luke's gospel also? You know, over the, the life of the church, I think Christianity has changed a lot. And I, I personally think that a lot of that change began uh, I mean, some of it began very early in the church, but I mean, it, it really took up, picked up speed um, in the 4th century when um, the Roman Empire made Christianity the religion of the empire because it changed how, how people interacted with or understood Christianity. It changed Christianity's role in society. But that's a, a sermon for another day. <laughs> but my point is that it's been changing and it has changed a lot. And although this is really an oversimplification, I think that you could say that, that Christians, as a, as a, as a, as people, as a groups, can be divided into, broadly into two categories into two groups of Christians, and this doesn't happen along denominational lines. This doesn't you know this doesn't happen along any particular um, you know. There's no racial or ethnic or aspects to this. But you, you can find people in in most even in in. In a single church, you can find people who fall into both these categories. The first group is largely focused on the afterlife. Usually their their first priority is to get into heaven. And usually that's because they want to escape some kind of eternal torment in hell. Their second priority is to get their family into heaven so that they can escape eternal torment in hell. And their third priority is to get as many other people into heaven to escape eternal torment in hell and then also want to make the world a better place by helping the poor and the oppressed and and uh, you know doing living the way Christ would want them to live but this is often driven more by a desire to get into heaven themselves because this is expected of them as christians the second group is Focused primarily on the here and now. They're working in Christ's name to feed the hungry, to care for the sick, to liberate the oppressed, to create a world that is closer to what Jesus described as the kingdom of God in his ministries. This group is putting the afterlife only as a second priority behind all of this. And this reflects very much, I think, the, the reality of the Jewish people at the time of Jesus's ministry. I think we had very much these same kinds of groups then. The, the religious uh, elite, the religious um, uh, uh, hierarchy, I guess, <laughs> was focused very much on um, doing what you were supposed to do to, to please God in doing uh, you know sacrifices and uh, rituals things like that, whereas this other group that was coming up and, and Jesus and John were both uh, members of this tradition but they weren't the only members of this tradition uh, they were more focused on on helping the poor and um, freeing the oppressed and all these kinds of things but we still have it today and the assertion I want to make and for me, this is a core truth of, of my faith is that after reading the Bible several times <laughs> and taking classes in biblical history and in biblical languages and reading original languages and paying very close attention to, uh, the words of Jesus, even if I didn't, didn't think about the, the social construct surrounding it or, or the narrative that it's placed in or, or which, you know, uh, which um, author of this particular thing, of this particular book or anything, but not even paying close attention to that. Just a simple reading of the text, but taking into account perhaps translation errors. I think that the second group, the ones who are focusing on the here and now, are the ones who are actually listening to the message. I think that this focus on the afterlife and on getting into heaven and escaping eternal torment is a corrupted version of Christianity. And I think that this idea started to become more popular in the church after, again, like I said earlier, Christianity was uh, made the, the state religion of the Roman Empire. Now, don't get me wrong. I I think this these things existed even before then. I mean, we can we can see that the, these same kind of concerns existed even in, in the religious um, communities of Jesus's day. But I'm just saying this idea that we should focus on getting into heaven, um, and what we do to get into heaven, and how we don't go to hell, became more and more a focus of the church as time went on, and in the Middle Ages especially, uh, it was. It's an extreme focus of the church. And this fear of eternal torment brought a lot of people into Christianity because it's a good, it's a, it's an, a compelling message. If you go somewhere where the, where the Christianity is not around and you say, look, God's angry at you. And if you don't do what you're supposed to do, you're going to burn in hell for all eternity. That's a powerful message. If you can get people to believe it, it's a powerful message. It got a lot of people into the church and it gave the church a lot of power over people's lives. But it also corrupts the goals and the motivations of those same people. Because when compared to an eternity of suffering, a lifetime of suffering is not really a big deal. I mean, eternity is forever. It's it's such a long period of time that our minds can't even comprehend of what it means. Such thinking can easily convince someone that if you have to choose between convincing someone to accept Jesus or providing them with proper food or with health care or with housing or clothes, that it's better to get them to accept Jesus, even if they go on being hungry or cold or homeless or sick or they die. This leads to people throwing their kids out of their homes because those kids come out to them as LGBTQ, for example. Because to those parents, it's more important to get those kids to be right with God as they see it, than for those kids to be healthy or to be happy or to be uh in a loving home or to have food. And that's terrible. That is a complete corruption of the gospel of the good news of, of Jesus Christ. A complete corruption. And when we look at the, at, the, at the text and we see what Jesus is really focused on, what his ministry is really focused on, it is what he says here when he quotes from Isaiah. It is feeding the hungry and taking care of the orphan. It is um, healing the sick and liberating the oppressed and freeing the prisoner. That's what it is. That's what the ministry of Jesus is about. That's the good news. The good news is that God loves you and forgives you. And that there's not going to be that day of vengeance that they wanted the Messiah. There's a reason why Jesus stops after saying, proclaiming the day of the Lord. It doesn't go on to that next line. It's the good news, of the gospel, that God loves you the way you are. And sure, we all make mistakes. We all have problems. None of us are perfect. We all sin, as it were. We all turn away from God every now and then, choose ourselves over our fellow human beings, choose ourselves over God. And for those things, we should repent and turn, turn back. And I'm not saying, as I've mentioned before, I'm not saying there won't be correction, that there won't be a time of correction and learning and, and dealing, with the, um, dealing with the outcomes of our actions, There has to be accountability. There has to be um, some response for the ways that we have have wronged people. But it's not eternal. Not eternal. When one comes to understand this message of universal salvation within Jesus' ministry and within the ministry of the early church, one can then focus more on what Jesus actually asked us to do to feed the hungry and care for the sick, liberate the oppressed. And now, not in the future, now, Jesus doesn't say this will, be, this will come true in the future. This will come true in a thousand years. Jesus says this has come to pass today and you're hearing it. It has happened. So as you go out this week, I invite you to think about this. Think about how Jesus has already brought into being in the world the kingdom of God and that it continues to come that we continue to work on it that we must work together to make the world a better place to make the world more like the kingdom that Jesus preached on the kingdom that Jesus' ministry was focused on it's up to us to make that happen but it's not coming a thousand years from now it's not coming after we die it's not coming when we're raptured we need to stop focusing on hell and start focusing on making life better for our fellow human beings. Amen.